Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, L. Russ. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have Dr. Loretta Bruning who's a PhD and an amazing guest we've had on before. If you're curious about her work, she was on episode number 82 with us, and we talked about her history and her work and one of her many books, Habits of a Happy Brain. And now we're back to talk about this new book of hers called The Science of Positivity, Stop Negative Thought Patterns by Changing Your Brain Chemistry. She is the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute. You can go to innermammalinstitute.org, which studies how our neurochemical makeup guides our feelings and behaviors in similar ways to our non-human relatives. And, you know, uh, Loretta began studying the brain chemistry of animals because she just wasn't convinced by prevailing theories of human motivation. And so when she learned that our happy brain chemicals trigger survival behaviors in animals, She went ahead and retired uh, her career as a professor and went ahead to connect the dots. And now her books and resources are just helping thousands of people, you know, basically, as she puts it, make peace with their inner mammal. Welcome to the show, Loretta. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to have you back. I love your work. Of course, I uh, had a huge quote of yours in my book. And, you know, we're going to get into so many topics here, but the science of positivity, this is one of my favorite topics about being able to actually make a difference and rewire your brain. And people don't understand that this is even a possibility. You go really into history and then we get into, you know, how the brain constructs a threat. And, you know, I'm going to let you lead us here because this is a wonderful topic. What brought you to, to get into this deeper? Well, I've always been a big fan of psychology and I read and read so many different perspectives And I would read one small mention of how a chemical affects animals and another small mention and another small mention. And then I watched all the nature videos, which um, some listeners may be fans of David Attenborough like I am. And everything I learned about animal behavior sort of conflicts with a lot of the idealized view we have of life, but it fit perfectly with the... um, the power of these neurochemicals to cause specific survival behaviors. And when I looked at the world that way, everything made sense, that we want to do things that trigger our happy chemicals, but they did not design to make us happy by sitting on the couch. They they are designed to make us happy when we do things that spread our genes. And no one consciously thinks that, of course. Right. And this all relates to, and, you know, we'll get into a deeper discussion of cortisol, you know, later, but obviously all of our thoughts or these triggers can then release that surge, which, you know, we don't want to at certain times, obviously. I guess let's start off with, um, what's the problem with happy chemicals? Okay. Well, there's a few problems. Um, the biggest one is they are not meant to be on all the time. They're meant to be released in short spurts, and then they dip. So if you feel like you have dips, you're normal. That's how your brain is meant to work. And in fact, they habituate. So something that used to make you happy 
your brain naturally creates a been there, done that feeling. So that's very frustrating. Another problem with them is that they sort of conflict with one another, like a step that gets you more of one can lead you to get less of the other. And finally, another problem with them is that they reward survival behaviors, which are not necessarily appropriate in polite society. <laughs> give us a, give us a animal example of one of these prongs you were talking about. Give us a you know, an observation in nature that that would reflect that. In the animal world, there's a lot of hierarchy, and this makes people very uncomfortable, and I'm not saying that we should have hierarchy, but your brain goes there. So if you watch the David Attenborough, all the videos, um, which he's been doing for decades, in the animal world, there's conflict over food. And uh, if you find two monkeys sharing food, you know, it'll get headlines anywhere, but like 99.9% .9 of the time, they're not sharing food. They're competing for food. And the one who gets more food gets more mating opportunity, has more surviving offspring. And so they compete for food only when they can do it without getting hurt. So the brain is designed to weigh the risk of asserting yourself against the expected reward of asserting yourself. And in polite society, there's risks to asserting yourself, which is why we all learn self-control on the way to trying to stimulate our happy chemicals. Is that uh, what you mentioned related to the, the jerks getting bananas scenario? <laughs> yes, that's a really short, simple way. Um, it always feels like the person who got the banana is a jerk, right? Because it felt like, well, that should have been my banana. And then you notice yourself saying, well, I don't care about the banana. I just want to give my banana to others, um, which people are fond of saying in a world where they already have enough bananas and they're looking to get rewards in the form of social esteem. But if you read about what monkeys do to get social esteem, it sort of works the same way. Monkeys are giving and receiving groomings, and they work their way up the hierarchy by grooming others and getting groomings from others once they have enough bananas. Interesting. Lots of different interpretations of the word grooming. <laughs> so, uh, yes, exactly. Right, right, right. Um, let's talk about, so, you know, the science of positivity. So... I'm an I'm uh, I'm a negative person, let's say, or I don't even know that necessarily, but I'm certainly down and uh, kind of a downer. Maybe people are pointing it out to me, and I'm having negative thoughts. To those people, when I've mentioned it, and I'm sure you've been there too. Obviously, when you're in that mode, you can't recognize that you actually have control of going down a road of changing that and rewiring those thoughts. But you feel powerless in that moment. So tell us how how can we go about rewiring something. And maybe that could be a specific example regarding a classic fear or, or something in your wheelhouse. Um, I love all of your examples, but you know what I mean? How, how can we go about that? Well, let's start with accepting that negative part of ourselves rather than saying, oh, we should go around with a plastic smile all the time. So if you had a lion chasing you, then saying, oh, I'm going to think positive would get you killed. So we are designed to put a higher emphasis on reality than on feeling good. But how do we judge what's real and what's not real? Well, this is the complicated part. We use neural pathways built from past experience. 
So anything that happened to me in my unique individual past, that feels like the absolute truth to me because it created real physical pathways. And this is how our ancestors learned not to touch fire. You know, once you touch something hot. Right, or certain plants. Yeah, yeah. So once something goes wrong once, it creates a huge pain circuit so that the rest of your life, you're like, oh, I'm not going to do that again. So every one of us has had pain in our past. And the safer your life is, the more of your pain revolves around social pain. So the example I always use is that if you feel traumatized by not getting invited to a party, that's because your life is so safe that that's the worst thing that it has happened. <laughs> what a great problem to have, actually, yeah. Man. Yes, yes, but it doesn't feel that way when the person is having it because the same chemical that tells you that a lion is about to kill you is released when you don't get the party invitation because in the state of nature social support, belonging, safety in numbers is what protects you from the lion. So it's almost like since we're not in the world of having to worry about like I've got lambskin as my only protection at night, <laughs> you know what I mean, out in the wilderness where I'm going to be on edge or that fight or flight is going to be real touchy and those are the kind of physical external threats I'm looking at. Once those are safe, like in our modern world, we're still sort of kind of constructed in that way to then, I guess what, you know, even construct threats and when they're not there, perhaps, and also what you're talking about, more of these social or emotional threats. It's almost like you take away all of that wildlife drama and then we transfer it right into just emotional, interpersonal <laughs> drama. That's kind of how I'm seeing it. Exactly. So when you said about, is the threat there or not? Well, so how do we assess a threat? So let's just say the threat of, if I'm going to walk out the room and someone's going to say, she looks fat, let's just use a very hypothetical example. So how big of a threat is it for someone to say, I look fat behind my back? Well, for our audience, Loretta, it's a pretty big threat. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I used it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But anyone, even our audience, can imagine a context of much worse things happening, right? So it helps to understand the happy chemicals when you're in this spot. So what makes the happy chemicals turn on? As I said, in the state of nature, it's anything that promotes survival. So if people look at you and like, let's say I leave the room and people say, wow, she's got it going on. She's really special. She's really something. In the state of nature, that would lead me to get what it takes to make more copies of my genes. So that's what stimulate my happy chemicals. And that's why people have the illusion that if people are admiring your appearance will stimulate your happy chemicals, then that's what you must do. But we all know that people come up with dozens of cockamamie ways to say, this is what I've got to do to stimulate my happy chemicals. And whatever worked in your unique individual past, you feel like you must do that. And you get the feeling that I will die and my genes will be wiped out forever if I don't do that one thing, which could be looking good. Yeah, this reminds me of the that donut example <laughs> that you give. Yes. I'd love you if you wouldn't mind giving that one again, because it's that whole reward, false reward system that is, again, a pattern you can Re rewire yourself out of, but it's sort of a classic one we've all fell prey to with something, whether it's a donut or something else. 
Yes, and thanks so much for helping, uh, for writing that book to help people understand the patterns that get built up around food that are related between the very deep survival issues and the very superficial past experience, and it all connects up. So that's why I use the donut as a simple example. If I feel threatened by, let's say, somebody thinking I don't look good, then that threat is a trigger, a release of cortisol based on the cortisol circuits built from my individual past experience. And once my cortisol turns on, that tells my brain, look for danger. And once you look for danger, you're going to be darn good at finding it. So what can you do to feel better? Well, everyone in their unique individual past experience has learned some particular thing that makes them feel better. So let's just say hypothetically a donut because you know that- Or a cigarette, right? Anything. Exactly. I I call these self-soothing habits. And everyone knows that there's a lot of them, but everyone has their favorites, which just happen to correspond to that one moment in your past. It's during puberty because that's when we build the superhighways of our brain. And so at that moment in puberty, when you were feeling bad and threatened, and you did this thing, which let's just say it's eating a donut, and it made the bad feeling go away. So to your brain, that is like protection from a lion. So let's just say I'm a monkey, and when I see a lion, I climb up a tree, and that feels so good to escape that the rest of my life I scan for trees. But in this case, a person might scan for donuts the rest of their life. And you know that just finding a parking spot near the donut shop triggers a good feeling and your bad feelings start to go away because you know that it's coming. But then you know that once you've eaten like the first few bites, then it's like the dopamine is gone because you already got it and your brain is designed to look for the next thing because in the state of nature, You always had to look for the next thing. You had no refrigerator guaranteeing your food. And that's why some people eat another donut. I just love that. It's so great the way you explain that. Let's get into the puberty reset. You talk about that and you briefly touched on it here. Anyone out there could be like, all right, well, I can get that because the hormones are changing, right? So therefore, so many things about us are changing. But I'd love you to explain and go through that. So a very simple explanation is there's a chemical called myelin, M-Y-E-L-I-N-N. Some people have been hearing a lot about this lately and others haven't, but it's a chemical that coats your neurons sort of like insulation coats a wire. And that allows the electricity in your brain to travel at super speeds. So anything you do with your myelinated pathways feels easy and natural and normal. So whatever you are doing to make yourself feel good or bad during your myelin years That's what feels natural and normal to you. So whatever worked for you, whatever didn't work for you in the puberty period and in the years before age eight, because that's when we have our most myelin, that's how you got your preconceptions of this is going to work or this is going to be bad. This whole subject is so fascinating. I mean, I guess we already discussed a little bit about it and we can understand that, but, you know, just the subject of the reptile brain and also this cortisol connection again, because it's like, you know, I've mentioned it on the podcast before. I used to have a serious fear of flying. I I mean, I'm still not a huge fan, but I mean, I really got over the horrendous fear of it. 
And I watched a movie, that movie about the, you know, plane landing into the Hudson, and I was wearing my heart rate monitor, and I mean, oh my God, it was just out of control. It was out of control. And so I knew in that moment that there was some major cortisol surges happening. I could feel it. In fact, I even had to pause the movie and breathe it out for a few minutes. Oh, yeah. And this is what, you know, we try to impart on everybody that, yeah, you know, you can you can eat this way and you can, you know, do that. But if you are a go, 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 or you're never turning off these things, you know, or, or if you're having cortisol issues or any kind of health problems, then maybe these aren't the things to be generating and triggering. But people don't realize that their thoughts and what they're exposing themselves to, toxic friendship, the movie Sully, <laughs> you know, yeah. is a, so I really want you to delve in here because elevated cortisol is such an issue with so many people. It is such a problem with thyroid. It relates to, you know, antagonistic to testosterone and it's a mess and it's ruining us because, you know, we're not actually adapting as well to modern society, you know, as, as we should, or as our genetics and our makeup dictates, really. And once we get back to that, life's better. So this cortisol thing is just really important. Yes. And people get locked into their preconceptions about whatever is causing their anxiety. And then they're mad at that. Like, oh, if only it weren't for that, then I would feel good. And so that particular whatever has to go away in order for me to feel good. And you can end up getting angrier and angrier about that and not realize what you're doing to create it and how you're sort of giving away your power when you don't. And um, in order to just give an example, I'm going to use a, a recent interesting conversation I had with someone about cancer. Okay. So everyone can relate to like on the one hand, of course, cancer is scary. But on the other hand, if I go every day and watch a movie about someone dying of cancer, then I'm going to feel horrible. Oh, my God, horrible. It's like the worst plan ever. Yeah. So I would choose not to watch those movies, not to surround myself in that negativity. Now, other people would say and have said to me, well, but maybe you need to watch that or read about that in order to build your courage or your sense of realism. And my sense of that is that the difference between taking steps toward a solution versus just gathering more and more evidence about the problem. Now, gathering evidence about the problem is not rational as much as people think they're being rational. Once your cortisol is on, it tells you to look for the bad and you only look for the bad. So any solution you could think of, you're only going to see the bad side of every possible solution. Right. That's why they always say sleep on it. When your cortisol is surging and you're high amount, that's not the time to pick up the phone, not time to press send on the text message, right? And, yeah. you know, all of those things. I like that you mentioned the whole, you know, well, if it weren't for that or if he or she didn't do that or if that hadn't happened. Yeah. You know, and that's why I'm choosing to remain miserable. That is such a looking for an external event or external people or opinions or situations to control your happiness. And it really, truly is going to come from within. And of course, there's some from the outside as well. Uh, likely the attitude is probably going to draw more of the <laughs> positive experiences in. Yes. How can we start to do this? You know, I, obviously, I always talked on the show about examining, you know, your thoughts and that at first that can be a little bit tedious, but to just sort of see what are my beliefs and thoughts that I'm thinking throughout the day. 
And when you have a negative one, and we all know what those are because you don't feel good when you're thinking it, it could be judging someone else's <laughs> life, you know, it could be you're miserable. So if you're not really happy and enjoying life, then you're probably having a thought that's a little bit tinged on the negative. What do we do from there? I know you have some, you know, great ideas in your book about how we can do some daily practices to kind of rewire our brain. Sure. Well, I'll start with the simple plan that's in the book, which is three times a day, spend one minute looking for positives. And people have different approaches to this. So one approach is what I call puppies and rainbows, which is most people know that like after a few days, puppies and rainbows doesn't do it for you. So you need something more realistic applied to your own life. Now, if you are applying to your own life, then you may say, yeah, but there's nothing good in my life. So that's where it's the practice of finding the good. And the effort of looking for good is actually what builds the pathway because you are already looking for bad. So looking for good is a skill that has to be built. Now, many people will say, oh, this is gratitude. But the idea is gratitude has mostly focused on stuff that is out there that's not personal to you or if it's personal to you that it fell in your lap by accident. And there's nothing in the gratitude practice that gives you permission to feel positive about things you've done, things you've created or made happen. So for example, let's say I'm on a journey of a thousand steps and I've taken the first step. I can feel good about that first step I've taken instead of saying, oh, I'm grateful that there's only another 999 <laughs> steps. Well, that's like a negative twist on a positive to say. It's like that's yeah. a very half-empty way of looking at it, right? Yeah. So instead to say, I took a step. Hooray for me. So are you saying, because I'm, I'm not necessarily understanding the distinction between, I don't see gratitude as being something outside myself. Oftentimes when I'm looking for the positives, are you saying instead of the obvious ones, like I'm so happy to have my legs and my arms, which that's grateful to be thankful for, that it, it's more of a thankful for something about you and a, more of a for you and your personality? Because that's what it sounds like to me, like patting the back on one's, you know, you see the distinction there? It seems like that that's what you're saying, which sounds wonderful that we should, yes, be very proud of ourselves, you know, versus maybe something that like just showed up like, oh, thank God I have my arms and I'm not dead today. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, between those two, I'm, I'm not saying something positive about myself because that brings up the whole habit of self-judgment. So I wouldn't want to be going there. What I would say that in my life, there are always lots of things going on. Some are positive, some are negative. And it's so easy to zoom in on the negative and take the positive for granted, right? So that's basically what I'm going to do unless I make a huge effort to do otherwise. So whatever is going on in your life, you have the whole day to focus on all the problems, but at least for three minutes a day, you're going to focus on the accomplishments. So how's that? Does that make sense? Yeah, accomplishments are great too. That's such a self-worth, wonderful thing. And it doesn't have to be my accomplishments. It could be people that I care about, or it could be some stuff that fell in my lap, some combination. But it's something that I feel good about, that I'm going to build the habit of sending my attention to something I feel good about that's not just 
the same every day. Like I have arms and the sun hasn't imploded yet, (laughs) but something actually going on in my life. Right. Actual tangible or like, Hey, you know, I have great relationship or I had a wonderful dinner with my brother last night, or it could be any, anything in your actual life that actually is going well. Yeah. But let's say you're disappointed with your relationship. You're disappointed with your job. Um, but let's just say that the person I'm in a relationship with, there are many things I like about those relationships and some things that frustrate me. And if I allow my mammal brain to just flow where it flows, I'm going to flow to all the things that frustrate me and overlook the things I feel good about. And a very simplistic example uh, that people could relate to is let's say you put something up online and you get 10 positive comments and one negative comment. Your brain is going to dwell on the one negative comment and you're actually going to forget about the good ones unless you really make a practice of it. It's really tipping the scales of your day, right? Of the go-to, perhaps sometimes cortisol-induced worst-case scenario threat, (laughs) you know, protection. And you've got to tip the scales uh, intentionally um, by, by doing these practices. Any examples of, I'm sure, real-life people you've worked with and know who maybe had a particular fear or a situation and was really able to do some major rewiring and, and get positive and change the way they, they looked at things? Well, I'll tell you an interesting story. I talked to some people who were in um, diet and nutrition counseling, and they were telling me about some clients of theirs who were, they use the term binge eaters. And you know how we hear so much about mindfulness. And they kept saying to me, well, you don't understand. These people tell me that they actually don't realize they're eating until they've eaten three quarters of a bowl of ice cream or something. So my new video series is devoted to them. So it's becoming aware of that moment when you're going into a pathway. So the electricity in your brain, as we talked about, the electricity in your brain flows like water in a storm. It goes into the most well-developed path, and that makes it effortless for you to turn on that old familiar behavior. And then when you're kicking yourself, oh my God, how did I do that again? But you've already done it. So how can you have that awareness before you do it? And what I put in, I have a new video series called You Have Power Over Your Heavy Brain Chemicals, which is free on YouTube and on my website. And the idea is how to become aware of that split second before you do that thing that you do, (laughs) which let's say could be, you know, putting the ice cream into the bowl. And so just as a hypothetical, let's say that you are going to walk backwards 10 steps before you do your thing. So let's just say this week you're going to eat your ice cream or smoke your cigarette as as usual, but every time you do it, you're going to first walk backwards 10 steps or spin around in a circle or touch your knee to your head, something awkward, as awkward as possible, that will sear that moment into your brain. So now it's impossible not to notice because you've associated the awkward behavior with starting the unwanted behavior. And when you do that, then you know when you're starting it, and then you can stop. But in that moment, you don't want to stop because you're feeling desperately bad, and 
that's what you need to know is the moment when you were putting the ice cream in the bowl, you were feeling bad. And most people would say, no, I wasn't. I just wanted the ice cream. I wasn't feeling bad. So that's the whole thing is to slow it down and say, yes, I was feeling bad. And that bad feeling is so well developed as a neural pathway that I don't want to go there because that time when you were under eight years old, you were powerless to do anything about that bad feeling. But today you're a powerful adult and you're going to come up with a whole list of new ways to manage that feeling. Right. And at the time, of course, like you said, you know, you're so young, other people were choosing your rewards, your right. So, you know, they get locked in and it's, you can change that. You can rewire those patterns and make different choices, you know, than you were given. Exactly. Exactly. But it does sort of go with having the courage to live with that uncomfortable feeling for one second, 10 seconds, 60 seconds, and learn to have the courage to say, you know what, that feeling will go away. And that's what the new pathway does. It says, that feeling doesn't kill me, but it's just a pathway that I can transcend. I'm laughing, thinking about driving by, you know, donut shops, and there's people outside just like banging their knees and like walking by. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just envisioning a whole new world out there. No, that's great. Your your book is so great. It's so, and as people are listening now, they can understand you have such an elegant way of explaining things to people in layman's terms and connecting the dots in a way that people can understand. And you have great examples and it's so clear. Another great book, you have so many uh, wonderful, great books, uh, Habits of a Happy Brain as well. Would you like to mention some others? Of course, we'll put your website and everything in our show notes. But um, other than the video series, um, I know there's some books uh, on your website as well, other than the one I just mentioned. Thanks. Uh, yeah. And you mentioned the new one, The Science of Positivity. And my first book was called I Mammal, How to Make Peace with the Mammalian Urge for Social Power. And this gets right into the meat of the competitiveness of animals in a group, the inclination to form groups and to try to rise within the hierarchy of that group. And it's in every group. Um, and as we go through our day, we're, we're interacting with all different groups and we can see it happening over and over. So it's not about pointing your finger at other people doing it, but feeling it in yourself and knowing that you can make peace with it and it feels so much better. That is so great. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, What about, and we'll put the links in, what about social media? Great. Yes, I have a daily Twitter update and a daily Facebook update. If you go to my website, the icons are all at the top. It's innermammalinstitute.org. I also have a five-day happy chemical jumpstart. You just put in your email and you get one message every day for five days, no cost, that um, explains all of the happy chemicals and the unhappy and what you need to do to take new steps. And then tell us again the video series that's also on your website that you just mentioned that's free. Great. It's youhavepoweroveryourbrain.com. Great. And we will put all of these links in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with? Well, I loved your image of the people going to the donut shop and hitting their knee into their head. (laughs) But now we want to add to that, that 
then they decide not to have the donut and get back into their car. <laughs> so that's what we're looking out for. But of course, the interesting thing is to develop the alternative self-soothing habit. And that's what the last segment of my video series is about. That's great. Thank you so much for all of your work and for your time today. We uh, would love having you on. Thanks so much. And thanks for your work. Bye-bye. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.